0: All right, we live in a world that loves to produce leaders, right? I mean, we hear that a lot. Uh, If you go by a local elementary school, you'll see in the fence growing leaders. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, but the real question that comes to mind when we think about growing leaders is what kind of leaders are we growing? And that's a question we really have to ask ourselves because what kind of leaders are we producing for the next generation? And what are their values? How are they going to lead? Uh, are they worthy of emulation? Are these leaders that we're producing as a society worthy of that? And today we're going to learn how the best leaders, the best leaders that we should follow, are leaders who are following Christ. And so let us pray as we join, get ready to get into God's Word. Thank you, God, so much for your Word, that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. I thank you for bringing us together to meet and fellowship today, to be able to to lift up praise and worship to you as we sang, and now to praise you and worship you through your word. God, as, as Brother Jim already prayed, uh, anything that we bring in here, any any distractions, anything that, that we have outside of here, I just pray that we're able to, to toss that off, that we're able to clear our minds and be able to receive the word of God. May, may the word that I speak be your word and not my own. And may it change us, starting in our minds, going to our hearts, renewing our minds, and, and strengthening our relationship with you, God. Thank you so much for, for just allowing us to read your word, for, for knowing what, what you've said, uh, to knowing knowing who you are through the Bible. And we praise you and thank you for that. Be with us today. Amen. So before we get into our points, I want us to turn to First Thessalonians. We've got a new book today. Pretty excited about getting into it. So we're going to start in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1 to us here. Uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace. So we start off here with, with Paul and his and his traveling companions on this second missionary journey, and he's greeting them. And for the record, uh, Silvanus is Silas, if you're kind of confused, like, who's Silvanus? Well, that's S- uh, Silas's other name there, another name he goes by um, here. And so we see Paul plant this church in Thessalonica back in Acts chapter 15, uh, and it was on his second missionary journey. And it's really strange here because in most of his letters, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul, a servant, and he kind of gives some data about himself and who he is. But here we just see him just list his name and his traveling companions, which is pretty neat to see because it shows an intimate relationship in this greeting that he's writing to them. He doesn't have to explain who he is because he knows they know who he is, and we we know also that this letter is probably the the earliest written letter by Paul that is in the scriptures. And we know this is probably no more than a year and a half after he had planted this church. Uh, So he knows like they have a really close relationship. It's been very recent. And so he speaks to them just as friends would. He doesn't have to really introduce who he is. And moving on, he says that this church is in God. How amazing is that? They don't just know about God. Uh, they don't just know about Yahweh and who he is, and, and they don't just know about Jesus and coming to earth and dying on the cross for your sins. They don't know just about him. They are in God. And when we see that great parallel passage of Second Second Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the church is in Christ. This church is in Christ. They're a new creation. He reminds that, them of that in the beginning of this letter. And then he goes on and he says, grace to you and peace. And so, I, lo- I love that. He, he puts that in a lot of his letters. Grace to you and peace. And, and we know that we have peace with God. And he's telling them that they have peace with God because of the grace that God has poured out through Jesus Christ. If it wouldn't be for the grace that was given, by grace you've been saved through faith, right? If it wouldn't be for that, there would not be peace with God. It's by the sacrificial atone of Jesus Christ. And then we get get to to verse 2. I'm going to go ahead and read it too. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So if we look at letters in this time period, there were usually three sections. You had, you had kind of an opening, which included a greeting, then you had the body of the letter, and then the closing. Well, Paul's a little unique in the fact he always has an added section in between. If we look at the opening with the greeting, he always puts a, a thanksgiving in his letters in between the body. And this thanksgiving is going to be quite an extended thanksgiving because it's actually going to take this whole chapter. So he literally has a thanksgiving section from, from verses 2 through 10 that we'll study today. And it's really neat. that We can learn from Paul so much about how important Thanksgiving is. Uh, so Thanksgiving helps us grow in contentment and joy. It helps us to look at at, at, the, at the blessings of God, even in the midst of suffering persecution. Because you see, Paul, who had just planted this church in Thessalonica, if you look back at Acts 17, he had been thrown out of that city shortly after planting this church. And so he had a lot more, I'm sure, work he wanted to do there, a lot more stuff he wanted to, to teach this church and, and to help them. But he got but he he under he underwent that persecution and he owes that they have as well. But he had a lot of, a lot to be thankful for because if we look at verse uh, in chapter three, verse six, we see that he's writing this letter after Paul or after Timothy has come back. So Paul had sent Timothy back. Obviously, Paul got thrown out thrown out. He couldn't really go back and, and hang out. But I guess Timothy was more under the radar. He was able to send him to see how the church was doing. And Timothy comes back and he says this, but now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us. Good news of your faith. So he had gotten a great report about this church for the most part. So Paul had a lot to be thankful for. And so what we're going to see is, as Paul discusses his thankfulness for this church, we're going to learn four ways that we as a church should be living as well and, and the way that we should be acting. And the first is we as a church, this first point, should be living well. We as a church should be living well. We're going to talk about how the Thessalonians were an example to others and how we need to be an example to others. And so we should be living well. And I'm going to read uh, verses 3 through the first half of 5. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So we kind of see, that they'll call it the the, the, the the triune signs of a believer here. Uh, and we see these kind of repetitive, especially in Paul's letters. Faith, hope, and love. We see that in 1 first, first Corinthians 13, right? The greatest of these is love as we go through that. And we're going to see here that he kind of gives three phrases including those three words. And the first one is work of faith. And this work of faith here, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying you work for faith, you work for salvation. It's saying those who are saved do Good works. And we, we see that even in Galatians 5, 6. But faith working through love. The love of Christ is working through your faith. And that brings us right to the next point, labor of love. A labor of love. The Greek word labor here. So we just saw work, and now we're seeing labor. And they actually are two different Greek words. It's not just an English thing trying to make it sound cool. We have two different words, and this word for labor is a little bit harder. It's copos versus uh, aaron, which is the other name for, for work. Uh, and, and it's a little bit harder of a word. It's not a huge difference, but it's, laboring is a little bit harder than work when you're looking at the Greek, and I think it likely stems from labor of what? Labor of love, and what word is that in Greek? Agape, which is sacrificial love, and so when we talk about laboring and love, it's, it's hard to work, right? Work is hard, but it's really hard to love unlovable people. And so this is a sacrificial love. And what he says, we are laboring, you know, laboring in love. You all are laboring in love. And so that means you're loving those who are persecuting you. You're loving those who aren't nice to you, aren't kind to you. And so he's saying this is, this is pretty tough. This is pretty tough. I'm sure, that, I'm sure we all could agree that loving the unlovable can be difficult at times, right? And then we go into this, this last one, steadfastness and hope. And this church is living in steadfastness and hope. And this word steadfastness means to persevere. And the only way we can truly persevere when things are going tough, and this church we're going to talk about things are are kind of tough at times for this church too. The only way we can do that is to look upon Christ and look upon the hope that we have in eternal life through salvation. Uh, When when we see that the war has been won, death has been defeated, the grave has been overcome, all completed by Jesus on the cross, we can remain steadfast and unmovable by the power of Christ. And I'm sure a lot of us right now, if we look around, we could all say, you know, we got something going on. I, I think everybody could look at their life and be like, you know what, life isn't just all rosy. Some, some may have some harder things than others. You know, some may have lost a loved one recently. Some may have been just really hurt by someone recently. Somebody may have lost a job, or maybe you just got a really hard medical diagnosis. Maybe there's something in your life, uh, you know, family, you know, maybe you have kids that, aren't, are, that are wayward or, or grandkids, or, or maybe your parents are struggling through something. You know, there's so much, the list goes on and on, but we can stay steadfast because we know the one who never changes, Jesus Christ himself. And, and we know that we can remain unmovable because of him. And this church in Thessalonica knew that as well. And I pray that we always remain unmovable by his power and his, his grace because we can't do it on our own. We need, it, we need him. If we, go, if we go moving into to verses four and, and the beginning of five, Paul calls these believers brothers loved by God. I love that phrase, "brothers loved by God." This is actually the only place in the Scripture where that phrase is used, and it's a very intimate uh, uh, phrase. There, "brothers loved by God," it's a very uh, uh, you know personal thing. And then he goes on in verse four, and he says, "For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you." Wow, I mean that, that that's a it's a lot to unpack right there. But I want us to go back, and we're gonna we're gonna learn how God chose them. And this is a really cool thing we know that God is fully sovereign and we'll go through that in a little bit but but we know that that before the foundation of the world he knew who were His, who was, who were going to accept Him. We see that in Ephesians 1 four and five that he that he predestined us, but we also know that he died for the whole world, John 3:16 uh, and we know that it's only by His name that we can be saved acts. For twelve, We know that this idea of, of election and and man's responsibility has been debated for, for centuries in the church. And we know that, that they're both true, but we don't really understand how that they mesh. But this is a really cool section because we're going to see God sovereignly working in the Scripture to save this people. So let's go to Acts 16, six, verses uh, 6 through 10. Join me as we read God's Word here. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And they had come up to Mysia. Uh, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of God would not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Wow! I mean, so in, in Acts sixteen we've literally seen God change Paul's direction twice—not just once, but twice. Paul's going this way; God says, no, "No, no, the Spirit of God." And then we see the Spirit of Jesus—same thing. You know, it causes him to to do this. And we have a a map. If you want to bring it up? I think it's here, and and we're going to kind of see what what happened here. So so this is is Paul's. Uh, missionary journey here. And if we're looking, uh, Paul, Paul started, started in Jerusalem, kind of goes up uh, this way in Antioch. Here we go. Um, Tarshish, Derby, Lystra. He meets Timothy in, in Lystra. Uh, we saw that in Acts 16. He then goes to Iconium, Antioch, which is a different Antioch here. Um, he, he wants to go into Asia here. And God says, no. And so he's like, okay, well now I'm going to go up. I'm going to go through Phrygia, which is this place right here. Now I'm going to go into Bithynia, which is north. And it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to go up this way. And God says no again. And it's like, so Paul's like, where am I going? He's like almost about to go in circles. He's like, well, where am I supposed to go? And then Paul gives him an image of Macedonia, which is all over here. And it's really, really neat to see because it was during this time period that the Roman roads were made. Uh, so the, the the Via Ignatia was made, which is which is this road that actually uh, goes into Macedonia from, from Philippi over. And, and we'll see that on a different map. But God, just in his sovereignty, had all of this developed and, and, and chose these two churches. So first, Acts 16, we see the church in Philippi. We've already went through that book. You know, the, the, the Paul plants a church there. After he's done there, he goes from Philippi over to Thessalonica, which is the next city over there th- through a couple of cities there. And how, how amazing is that, that we see God sovereignly working by his power and his Holy Spirit? We don't know why that God had him not going to Asia or not going to Bithynia. But what we do know is that God chose those people, that we know that he did it all for his glory. We know that, that the gospel still went out through the whole world. It just wasn't Paul who was supposed to go there. It's not that he didn't love the people in Asia or love the people in Bithynia. The gospel would go out throughout the world. And he's challenged us to take the, take the gospel to all nations, not just to one, to, to all nations. But we do know is that if you are a believer, then you are chosen by God. How amazing is that? I mean, th- those of us who are here who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is there anything better in the world than to be called beloved and chose, chosen by God? I think it's the most wonderful thing in the world, and I, I pray that we can confidently identify with this church here. So not only because we are chosen, we should live for Christ well, but we should also be led well. And so let's read the the second half of verse five here and verse six. It says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So this church became imitators of who? Paul and his traveling companions, you know, Sylvanus or Silas and Timothy. And this is really important because mentoring and discipleship is so important. Uh, and we, we see uh, actually in Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. So God uses his word to help us grow. He uses prayer and the Holy Spirit to help us grow, but he also uses other people to help us grow. You know, sometimes it's really good to have that godly brother or sister that kind of comes and says, hey, you know, maybe what you're doing is not right no, maybe you shouldn't have said that that way. And that's great, that iron. And it hurts, right? When, you, when iron sharpens each other, there's, there's sparks that go off, right? And there's sometimes relational difficulties. Sometimes there's some hurt, but that's, it's a good kind of hurt. It's a good, it helps you become sharper and more like Christ. And, and we grow a lot by doing life together. And that is why church attendance and membership is so important and fellowship with other believers is so important we're not able to sharpen one another. We're not able to sharpen each other as iron uh, sharpens iron if we're not together in fellowship. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, I hear a lot of people that will come to me and they'll say, you know, Pastor Jonathan, I, I've got a really spiritually dry time in my life. And don't get me wrong, we all have those times. It does happen. But probably nine times out of ten, you start to ask, well, what kind of Christian brothers and sisters do you hang out with? You know, who, who are you doing Bible study with? Uh, what, you know, what, and most of them are like, well, I really don't have anybody. I'm not, I'm not really, I go to church maybe once a month, or maybe I go twice a month, or maybe I, you know, I, I have this one person I call like every three months and we talk about something, but don't really have somebody that I'm, I'm investing in, that's investing in me, that we're doing life together, that we're calling each other out and maybe being accountable with each other, saying, hey, you need to be in the in the word, you need to be at church, you need to be serving, you need to be doing this. And nine times out of 10, it's because there's no koinonia. There's no fellowship. There's no body. And so I pray for our church that we do do koinonia, that we fellowship together, that we're not just meeting on Sunday mornings. Now, we need to be re- meeting regularly Sunday morning, as, as Hebrews ten twenty five says, but we also need to be meeting outside of church. You know, find somebody to hang out with and, and talk about things. Reach out on the phone or Zoom or whatever. and you know, there's all kinds of ways to reach out these days. Just this past week, I actually had a brother in our church who sent me a text, and it was a great text. And it was so encouraging to me personally. Um, and he, he had just finished reading the book of Genesis, and he's like, just telling me, man, you know, I'm just watching how, how I can see Christ in this book, and you know, Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, you know, talking about, you know, how Christ would come and, and crush the enemy, crush the serpent's head, uh, as we see just even parallels between, uh, you know, Abraham and Isaac, and, and just all these things, and he's so excited about reading this, and he's texting me all this one morning this past week, and I was like, man, you know, If you don't have somebody, when you read the word and you get excited about it, if you don't have somebody that you can text and be like, they can share in that joy, you've got a problem. You need to make some more friends. You need to put yourself out there and have somebody because you need somebody else to do that for you too. I was encouraged by my brother who sent me that. I was like, wow, this is is great because I was encouraged because somebody else is reading this and they're getting a lot out of it and it's changing their life. And that is encouraging, especially as a pastor, really, really encouraging. It also shows us the importance of godly leaders in this section. And I will say this: the preface is, we in our society uh, probably worship leaders uh, a lot, a little too much, or a lot too much. We have even a show, American Idol, right? And we have, like, if you look at politics, there's, there's there's virtual worship of some politicians, and 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 it's really really bad. And I feel like that's even crept in our churches sometimes as well. And you can have, you know, preachers stand up and say something that is completely contrary to Scripture, but yet everybody believes it because of their platform and that. And, and I think. In our theologically stronger churches, sometimes we can struggle with the opposite side as well. And and this quote really kind of convicted me a little bit. Leon Morris said the following. He was a theologian. uh, While many in modern times will feel hesitant about directing attention to their own lives, it remains true that no preacher can expect a hearing for his gospel unless it is bearing fruit. In his own life, and and there is a incredibly strong importance of of strong godly leadership in the church, and I pray that in our church at Crosspoint that we that we that the leaders here are worthy of emulation. They're, 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 they're men that you can say, okay, those are guys that I would follow into something. I would I would ask for advice with counsel, and I pray that we live our our lives in that way. I pray that your grace covers our multitude of sins because we are imperfect. But I pray that if we want to have a healthy church, that we as leaders are leading in a godly way. Number three, we as the church should be leading well. So we should be led well, but we should also be leading well. And we'll see this with this church here, verses seven through nine. It says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report." concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn, from God from, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So according to Gene Green, he's another theologian, this verse 7, this is the only congregation in all of scripture that the whole congregation is said to be worthy of emulating. I mean, now that's a solid church. When you say, hey, that, that church is worthy of emulating, that's a big statement, you know. Somebody might say that pastor is worthy of emulating, or that you know that religious leader here, or or maybe even this family in this church is worthy of emulating, or this group. But he says no. This whole church is so solid that we need to run our churches like this. Like if if, if I'm going to you know make a, an example here, and this word example actually is is two posts is what it means, and and. and that, that word if we kind of break it down before kind of applying it here if we break it down it, it actually was a wooden stamp uh, that was that was used to kind of make the exact same seal on everything that it went and so it was like, hey, we want to take this church we want to replicate it exactly. We love the way that their heart is we love how they're living for the Lord we love that they're that they're going through persecution and they're, and they're responding with godliness like this is this is a church I want you to be like. And then this news of their faith has spread throughout. So remember that map, map we saw? You know, there, there were all these different places. And so, so Mysia and, and those areas, they were pretty close to there. But then he says it went everywhere. I mean, that's first off, we know that's a little bit of figure speech. Probably didn't get to, you know, North America yet, and things like that. But, but it went everywhere in the known world for the most part. And Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's likely 200 to 250 miles away, traveling miles away from them. And Timothy's bringing back word, right? So, so we know that it went at least 300 miles, if not more. And then if you look at this next map, we talked about the Via Ignatia. Um, and, and it was just amazing how God and his sovereignty makes this, uh, th- th- this road. And so if we look over here from Byzantium all the way over to the Adriatic Sea, Byzantium's modern-day Istanbul, if you're looking at like a modern map, um, it, it, it went all the way over here, this, this Via Ignatia, 700 miles of Roman road. Then you would go across from from uh, from here to here, and you would actually get to Rome. you can see the the bottom of the boot if you know Italy there uh, so, so you, you've got Italy and, and the Roman Empire and they had it's just amazing. we mentioned this already, but God in his sovereignty in the first and century BC had had this Roman road system built and so god it's just amazing like how, how God, in his sovereignty, has this Roman road system built, which is a catalyst for probably to be able to cover all that ground coming all the way from down here, going all the way up able to do that, he wouldn't have been able to do that very well if there wasn't this nice road system that he could travel. Uh, so it's just cool to see God God working through that. And then we get to verse 9, and verse 9 had just said, we talked about how they turned from idols. And what that shows us is this is a predominantly Gentile church, which makes sense because of where it's located. Now, in Acts 17, we, four, we did say that some Jews were converted, other Jews actually are who threw him out, uh, you know, who actually persecuted Paul and threw him out of the area. But some Jews were converted, but this was mostly a, a Gentile-led church. And if we look at historical records, uh, Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. Some 200,000 people were there. Guess how many gods that they had? At least 25. So this is an area with a lot of gods. And, and and I mean just just tons of that, and so this was a huge countercultural movement to go from twenty five gods to one. I mean that, that that was a huge movement in this in this society, and and yes, this meant political, social, and financial ostracizing, because you see Romans were pluralistic in their thinking. Um, so so what they would do is they would take. Uh, they, they loved new ideas and they, they would talk about things and they would just incorporate them into their own thing. And I guess in your handout, they practice something called syncretism syncretism and this may be a word you'll hear other other times. And the syncretism was fusing multiple religions into one. It was you know they would conquer a people group and they would take their gods and rename them and put them into their own. We see that with the Greeks, right? So so what they did was they took Greek gods and goddesses and they just renamed them and kind of blended them into their own religious ideal. And this was considered a higher level of thinking. This is how Romans did it. Multiple gods, you know, this is it. And then you had obviously Caesar's up here, and, and is, is practically worshipped during, depending on who the emperor was at the time. Yet Christianity stood right in the way of this. Uh, Christianity stood right in the way of pluralism and syncretism, because it stood on objective truth, one truth. Do it around me four two. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the lord your god that i command you Says you can't add anything else to this you, you, you can't take anything away you can't add it this is the truth it's the one truth that means everything else is lies that means that your other gods and goddesses are not real obviously jesus went even further saying what in john fourteen six, which we've mentioned a bunch of times jesus said to them i am the way and what the truth wait a minute the truth means there's only one The truth, not a truth. He is the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the Thessalonians led well by rejecting syncretism, and because of this, God was glorified. But does this idea of syncretism and pluralism sound familiar today? Uh, it, it, we're, we're pretty much a modern-day Rome if we look at our culture, too. It, it, it's okay to throw all these other religious worldviews. You can be a Muslim. You can be a Hindu. Uh, you can be agnostic. You can be a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness even a lot of times. I mean, you know, all these things, you can bring all these other ideas. You can add to the Scriptures. You can take away from it. But what can you not do? You can't believe that this is the inerrant Word of God. You, you, you can't say all other truth claims are wrong. This is the objective truth because that's not what's valued in our culture. Our our culture values not just tolerance of one another, but acceptance of somebody else's truth. Even if you don't agree with it, you believe it's true for them, and that's postmodernism, and that has become so big in our society. And and that is what caused the Thessalonians to struggle, to be persecuted, to lose their jobs, to to struggle financially. Uh, This church is actually called, uh, if we look at Philippi and Thessalonians, one of the one of the most generous churches we'll see in scripture but it's also one of the most impoverished churches it's because you can't keep your job if you're not following through with what they wanted and so we see that the gospel is spread because of them they're, they're going out they're spreading the gospel but they're not only spreading the gospel they're living the gospel and i think it's so important we cannot spread the gospel in our area if we're not living the gospel, if we're not an example of what it means to do that. And I pray that we as a church are not only proclaiming the truth of the gospel, and we must proclaim it. We can't do the other thing saying we're just going to live this good life and people are going to, you know, quote unquote, want Jesus because we're being kind to them. We can't take that that approach that we've talked about. That is, that's a dangerous approach. But the other approach is just as dangerous. We're going to go proclaim the gospel, but we're not going to live it. We have to have both. We have to have proclaiming the gospel and a life that is shaped by it. And my friends, if you do that, you're going you're gonna to have some persecution. You're going to have ostracizing. But may we count it all joy to suffer for Christ, as we see in James 1, 2. Finally, in, in, in the fourth point here, we as the church should be longing well. Should be longing well. Let's read verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I love how Paul ends this section on Thanksgiving. We've been talking about from verse 2 to 10, a nice long Thanksgiving section. He tells them to remain steadfast under their persecution, to, 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 to which he's just talked about how they're going through persecution in verse 6 at the end there. We saw that. But he ends this, this section telling them how they can do it and kind of going back and hitting that, that hope that we talked about earlier today, the hope of eternal life and steadfastness that can be remained with Christ. He is coming back. And because of, God, of Christ's work on the cross, we can have faith. We're able to long for our future with Christ while we work through the power of Christ in our lives. We can be confident because Christ was crucified for our sins some 2,000 years ago. He raised from the dead, and he's now at the right hand of the Father. And because he paid the penalty on the cross for our sins, his wrath was appeased. And we see here, it says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come is how he ends this section. And if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if if you've kind of said, well, you know, I'm going to make that decision in the future, I'm not really going to think about this. There's no amount of work that you can do to avoid God's wrath. And that word wrath is something that we we in the church don't really like to preach much. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. We like to talk about God's love. We like to talk about God's favor. We like to talk about God's blessings, but we don't like to talk about God's wrath. And ever known for his preaching intensity, Charles Spurgeon said the following, and bear with me on this. This is a tough quote. If you turn the Lamb of Zion into the Lion of the tribe of Judah, beware, for he will tear you in pieces, and there shall be none to deliver. It is the sacrifice of Christ that arrests the acts of justice, which else must execute you. Wow, now that's preaching the wrath of God right there. Charles Spurgeon was not known to, to not put punches out there. And so what, what he's saying here is that if our sins are not covered by the blood of Christ, he's not the lamb. He's not the good shepherd for you. He is the lion of Judah, and you will be judged forever in hell. And that is a hard thing, a hard teaching. Jesus talked about hell a lot if, we read, if, you, if you look through things. But if you have been covered, that axe was not just arrested. It's not just here and here you are and you're just waiting for the execution. You're waiting for that beheading and oh, you know. No, if you are in Christ, if you can speak like the Thessalonian churches and say, I have put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, it's not by works, it's by grace. And and I throw myself at his mercy and I want to follow him. I want want him to be be my life. I want to be in Christ. Then he doesn't just arrest it, he took the punishment. The axe fell on him. He, he's the one that suffered the death that we deserved on the cross with, with nails piercing his wrists and his feet and a crown of thorns on his head and a, dying a horrible death after being whipped 40 minus one ta- lashings before he even did that. He took the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God on the cross. And I pray that, that each one of us here, we've had that, that axe, not just arrested, but broken and destroyed. The the axe of judgment that we deserve, that was hanging over us, that is over anyone who is not in Christ right now, I pray that if we are in Christ, we we realize that that axe has been abolished. It's been thrown away. It's been destroyed forever. The grave has been destroyed. If you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that axe is still there. That lion is still there waiting for you. And, and I don't say that to try to scare you into to becoming a Christian. I say that to be just truth-filled, that there is a judgment, there is a true hell, and none of us here who are saved want to see anyone go there, and that's why we do what we do. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we tell people about who Jesus Christ is, because he is coming again, my friends. Can I get an amen? He is coming again, and how wonderful is that for us who are in Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, his coming again is a terrifying thing. For the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so I pray that we have put our faith and trust in Christ. If you've not, I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a believer, what it means to have that axe abolished, destroyed, and to have salvation through faith through him. He loves us so much, and he has died on the cross for all of our sins. We only need to respond. Has come to a close. I pray that we are a church that lives well by being obedient to God's commands. May we be a church that is led well by leaders who follow Christ and lead by example. And may we be a church that is leading well with a congregation, an entire congregation, worthy of emulating. And finally, may we be a church that is longing well as we wait for the coming of, of our glorious Savior who has saved us from the wrath to come, namely by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for for not just arresting the axe that was above us, not not just barely saving us, but, God, demolishing death for all eternity for those who are in you, Uh, that that we don't have to fear death, that we can, frankly, look forward to it, as as Paul said, uh, for to live is Christ, but to die is, is gain. I pray that everyone here can say that. Uh, To live as Christ, but to die is gain. To live as Christ, meaning we are in you. We are walking with you. We are walking in step with you. Uh, But to die is gain, meaning we are going to be forever with you in heaven. God, if we can't say that, if anybody here can't say that, I'd love to talk to them about what it means to be able to say that, what it means to put your faith and trust in, in Christ and repent of your sins and turn from your sins and turn toward our Savior who loves us so much. We praise you. I pray that this week that that idea, that thought of God's wrath, is in in our head and in our heart Uh, that that, that first off we make sure that we're right with you and I pray that we are and if we're not that we make that right but secondly for those who are in Christ that are a new creation that the the old has gone the new has come and, and have a new self God I pray that we know that there are people in our lives in our families that that do have that axe just hanging above their head waiting to drop the acts of judgment of eternal punishment in hell is right there, and they need to hear the gospel, and they need Jesus Christ. God, give us a love for them, a love, a love, so much of a love for them that we're willing to have that uncomfortable conversation that may break our relationship. It may tick them off. It may ostracize us at work. It may ostracize us in our neighborhood. It may ostracize our, us our, even in our own families, God. But may we be willing to say the hard things in love but in truth. Lord God, may we love others more than we love ourselves. May we get out of our comfort zone and preach your word and tell people about you. It's, it doesn't require a pastoral degree in order to do that, Lord. We are all given the Great Commission in Matthew 28. If, if we know who you are, we can tell others about you. We don't have to have all the answers. We just have to have the heart behind it to share the gospel and share what you've done in our lives and how you've changed us from the inside out. Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for this time together, and I pray that you are always glorified through our lives. Amen.